Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. Really excited today to have on obesity expert and neuroscientist Dr. Stefan Guiné to talk to us all about his new book, The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting Instincts That Make Us Overeat. This is a topic that hits home for me. I see a lot of patients in clinic who are struggling with weight gain, prediabetes, diabetes, as well as athletes who either struggle to maintain weight or struggle to lose weight. And so Dr. Guiné's work is all about how the brain is ultimately the governor of this factor and how it directly regulates body fat levels via something called the lipostat. He'll discuss the role of calories in versus calories out in this weight loss equation, as well as the role of insulin. He'll dive into dopamine, what we think of as the pleasure signal in the brain, and actually its fundamental role in steering behaviors, including eating behaviors. And he dives into traditional diets, how concentrating foods dramatically impacts brain function, lack of sleep impacting our food choices, really a lot of fundamental uh, key concepts here. And in his book, he goes into great detail, but also provides some fantastic metaphors and anecdotes. So have a listen here. My layups and performance hacks you'll find at Dr. Bub's forward slash podcast. And uh, enjoy this interview. There's a lot of, a lot of great stuff here from Dr. Guinea. My guest today is Dr. Stefan Guiné, PhD. Stefan earned his Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry at the University of Virginia, then pursued a PhD in Neuroscience at the University of Washington, where he continued doing research as a postdoctoral fellow. He spent a total of 12 years in the neuroscience research world studying neurodegenerative disease and the neuroscience of eating behavior and obesity. His publications in scientific journals have been cited over 1,400 times by his peers. Today, he continues his mission to advance science as a writer, speaker, and science consultant. His new book, The Hungry Brain, released in February 2017. Stefan currently consults clients, including Open Philanthropy Project and the Examine.com Research Digest. He's also the co-designer of a web-based fat loss program called the Ideal Weight Program. Stefan lives in the Seattle area, where he grows much of his own food and brews a mean cider. Stefan, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Okay, good to be here. Uh, if we could just kick things off with... Uh, Telling everyone how you decided to go down this road into neuroscience and obesity research. Yeah, sure. So I've always been interested in science um, and particularly neuroscience. Even as a child, I found it fascinating. Um, the brain is the organ more than any other organ that makes us who we are as humans and as individuals. And it's also possibly the most complex object in the known universe. And so it it's uh, something that's always been a source of fascination for me. And so I went to college with the idea that I would learn uh, some biochemistry and form a good foundation for later going into neuroscience. That's what I did for grad school. And in grad school, I studied neurodegenerative disease and kind of, um, which is really important. I think neurodegenerative disease has uh, huge, there are huge burdens coming from that right now, and that's only going to increase in our society, but the particular disease that I was studying was pretty rare, and I kind of eventually started to crave um, working on a more common, more impactful problem, and so I, I've also been always kind of very interested in health and nutrition, um, 
and I've always cared about diet and paid attention to diet. And so it was natural for me to become very interested in the topic when I started learning about how important the brain is for eating behavior and body fatness. So that was a kind of that was kind of a way for me to bring together two of my big interests. Um the interest in food and health and the interest in the brain. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that the brain is really central to understanding eating behavior and obesity. And I think, you know, this is this is one of those things that's really, really obvious in retrospect. The brain generates all behavior, including eating. So it's obviously the thing that decides what and how much you eat. Um, yet I feel like that kind of like fundamental insight is not really very commonly appreciated in discussions of um, diet and health and nutrition and behavior change. So um, anyway, that that interest led me to get a postdoc at the University of Washington with a researcher named Mike, uh, Mike Schwartz. And Mike and I studied the um, part of the brain called the hypothalamus that regulates body fatness. And we studied how that part of the brain works to regulate appetite and energy expenditure in the interest of maintaining body fat and also how that process, that regulatory process changes in a way that can both cause and um, both cause obesity and sustain obesity. And so during my work with Mike, I realized I, I had this kind of like very strong realization that I was studying the right organ. Um, because not only does the brain regulate the behaviors of eating, and I say regulate, generate is really the right word. The brain generates the behaviors of eating, but it also regulates a lot of physiology, including um, how many calories you're expending and how many calories are going in and out of your fat tissue and what your physiology is doing in terms of um, use of energy substrates like carbohydrates and fats. So... Um, it's really central to a lot of these processes that we care about related to eating behavior and health. Yeah, it's terrific. I mean, your your new book, The Hungry Brain, you do such a phenomenal job of, of going into great detail about the, the role and mechanisms of the brain, but you also provide these wonderful you know, anecdotes and metaphors. And of course, you kick the book off with the story of a of a guy named Utala who's from originally from Catawba, a small island off the coast of New Guinea. And it's it's noteworthy because, as you mentioned in the book, the Catawbans are notoriously healthy, lean, and you know free of chronic diseases. Uh, yet, as you mentioned, to kick things off in your book, Utala is about 50 pounds heavier than everybody else on the island. So can you um, enlighten the listeners with, with generally what's going on there and how that sets things up in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is the research of Stefan Lindberg, um, who, who was a researcher at the University of Lund in Sweden, and he was a guy who was really inspired by um, some of the original um, grandfathers of the paleo movement, like um, Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor. And he, so a lot of the a lot of the people in the paleo movement. Um, there are very few people who, you know, a lot of people talk about non-industrial cultures, but there are very few people who have actually gone out and studied non-industrial cultures yep. in that community. And he's one of the few people who has actually gone out and done it. 
So he was he was so inspired by this stuff that he decided that he was going to go study this culture that had scarcely been touched by industrialization. And they, they weren't actually hunter-gatherers. So Stefan was really interested in the paleo diet. These people were not actually hunter-gatherers, but they did eat in a manner that was kind of broadly consistent with our conception, with the common conception of the paleo diet, which is to say that they didn't eat grains, they didn't eat dairy, they didn't eat processed foods, um, they didn't eat any kind of agricultural foods, beans. Actually, they ate very little of it, let's, let's put it that way. And um, so, yeah, he went to this island, Catawba, and there is no obesity. There is no detectable cardiovascular disease, no detectable diabetes. These people, by all measures, are far healthier than any population you could find in the United States or in any industrialized nation. Um, they just do not suffer from the so-called diseases of civilization which are the things that pop up when cultures become sedentary and affluent and, you know, their diet changes and all that. And so interestingly on his study on the, during the course of the Catawba study, he actually did identify one person who was almost obese. He was kind of on the cusp of having obesity um, with abdominal, uh, a lot of ab abdominal fat. So he had a big belly <clears throat> And this man also had the highest blood pressure of anyone, highest blood pressure, highest hip weight ratio of anyone on the island by far. Like he was a, just an outlier. He's 50 pounds heavier than the average Catawban man of his height. And it turns out that he actually was not a permanent resident of Catawba. He was just visiting. He was a person... A, a Catawban who had left the island to go work as a businessman in Papua New Guinea. And so essentially what that shows is that it's not like the Catawbans are some kind of, you know, genetic freaks that can eat whatever they want and stay exactly. lean. What it actually is, is that just like all other cultures, all other populations around the world, they're lean and healthy when they're eating a traditional diet. And then when they go to, a um, modern industrialized diet, they develop bodies and they develop physiologies that are very similar to the ones that are prevalent in industrialized sedentary societies such as the United States. And so I, I, thought, I thought that was a, a pretty striking illustration of that concept. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And I mean, you know, you, you talk about various statistics as well. And you know, in the 1960s, one out of 111 people being classified as very obese, whereas fast forward 50 years to 2010, and we're into one out of every seven is very obese. Um, and you touch on an interesting study um, in the 1970s, or effectively how we feed mice to really gain weight. Can you tell us a bit about the cafeteria diet and some of the insights that's led to? Oh, yeah. I think, I think this is really interesting. And I, I think this is just a very basic fundamental observation that... Um, I keep coming back to because it's so important. So um, the more I've learned about rodent research, and, and just to, to clarify for, for the audience, um, my obesity research was primarily in rodents. We also did some human work, but primarily in rodents. And the more I've learned about rodents, the more I've actually come to believe that rats in particular are not as different from us as we would like to believe they are. 
Um, there are a lot of really striking similarities in terms of how their brains are set up, how their brains are wired, how their brains communicate, um, and in terms of their physiology. And that doesn't necessarily mean all rodent research translates automatically to humans, but I think that in terms of just the basic functioning of the brain and how it interacts with food and things like that, I think, I think there's actually a lot of similarities. Um, so back in the 19, I believe it was the late 1960s, a guy named Anthony Sclafani was a graduate student and he was trying to make rats obese. At the time, um, people, you know, this was before the obesity epidemic, but there was still obesity around and people were trying to understand it. And they were trying to develop good rodent models for obesity. And so they would just, the most common thing to do was to add fat to the rat food. And then they would kind of slowly gain fat and eventually some of them would become obese. But it was not a very rapid or efficient or strategy. And so they were looking for something better. So one day, Anthony Scalfani had, this, this was back in the day where I think things were a little less regulated. Working with animals was a little kind of uh, less uh, scrutinized and regulated than it is today. But Sounds like it, yeah. he had a rat. There was a rat that was um, on his lab bench, and it happened to come across a bowl of Fruit Loops that one of his fellow graduate students had put there. And rats are normally very wary of unfamiliar foods. And so they, they don't usually do anything but just kind of sniff or nibble something they've never seen before. But the rat went over to the Fruit Loops and just started completely stuffing its face. <laughs> and yeah, and it, this, this is pretty, pretty unusual for a rat. And so this gave Sclafani this idea of, well, maybe I should just, if I want to make these rats fat, maybe I should just feed them human foods. Maybe I should just go out, get palatable, highly palatable, processed, calorie-dense human foods, and put a bunch of it in their cages and see what happens. And it turns out that this diet, which he originally called the, um, what was it, the uh, supermarket diet, but later um, the more common name for it now is the cafeteria diet, they just absolutely gorge and become super obese. And there's no other diet that you can feed them, not a diet high in sugar, not a diet high in fat, not a, high, not a diet high in sugar and fat. There's no other diet that you can give a normal rodent that will make it eat more or develop obesity more quickly than feeding it palatable processed human food. So I think this is a pretty striking observation. I mean, there's, I mean, this is the most fattening food, human food, the stuff that we eat every day is the most fattening thing you can possibly give to a rodent. Yeah, it was amazing when I read that in your book and just the idea of calling it the supermarket diet seems even more appropriate, as you mentioned, because obviously the supermarket aisles are a major cause of what's going on and the food availability we have. And I actually saw this in my, uh, my three-and-a-half-year-old when she was in the first year and a half eating a really traditional diet, ancestral-type diet, and then all of a sudden mm -hmm. having a chance to be exposed to a few things at daycare and cereal being one of them as a snack. And it was amazing how you know, almost in the blink of an eye, the, uh, the, the appetite and the cravings just started to switch pretty quick. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to show you that that food, it delivers on some level what our brains are looking for instinctively. It's been expertly crafted to deliver the, um, the properties that our brains are hardwired to look for through natural selection. Um, yeah, and so I think that it, it's just a very basic observation. I think that these foods are so fattening to rodents, but I think it's also very, very profound in a, in a really simple common sense way, but something that I think is very important and actionable is that if you surround yourself with those types of calorie-dense processed foods, your brain is going to drive you toward overeating and obesity. That's just kind of how we're wired. And, and by the way, I didn't mention this, but there were actually similar studies that were done in humans on this so-called cafeteria diet that found very similar effects. So when you lock people up with a variety of highly palatable calorie-dense foods and you let them easily get as much of it as they want, people will just naturally overeat tremendously and start gaining weight rapidly. So, I mean, basically it's a, a very analogous situation to the rodent studies and the result is also very analogous. Absolutely. I mean, you, and you, you dig into the roles of various um, neurotransmitters and brain chemicals and dopamine being one of them. And the, the common misconception of dopamine is more of a pleasure uh, neurotransmitter. Can you, can you tell us the can you break a few myths there and tell us the real role of, of dopamine and its function in the brain and body? Yeah, sure. I think this is kind of an extraordinary story because so there was this there's this guy uh, there is this guy Roy Wise at uh, the National Institute of Drug Abuse NIDA and he was one of the people I interviewed for my book and he came up with this idea back in the gosh 80s or 90s that and on the, on the basis of really very little evidence, but he was just kind of speculating that dopamine may be a chemical mediator of pleasure. So dopamine might be the pleasure, um, the, the pleasure neurotransmitter. And essentially everything that's come since then has refuted that idea that it has nothing to do with pleasure. And he very quickly acknowledged those that evidence and said yeah dopamine has nothing to do with pleasure but for some reason that idea stuck in the popular mind and in the popular press that dopamine is the pleasure chemical and, and ever since ever since then it, it just hasn't gone away it's like this this idea that just stuck and refuses to go away because it's so deeply ingrained but there's really never been any evidence to support that or really very very little um, and at this point, we have quite a bit of evidence suggesting that that's not the case. Um, what dopamine is, it's a learning and motivation chemical. So, um, and I think the reason why we get it confused with pleasure is because in the brain, learning and motivation are very closely tied in with pleasure. So generally, what you see is that all three of those things come together. So you see learning, you see motivation, and you see pleasure all happening at the same time. And that's something that you call, that's something that's called reward. And this is something, this is a response that the brain has to a variety of things that it's hardwired to, to want, like food, especially food with certain properties, sex, uh, comfort, 
you know, physical comfort, uh, social, um, social kudos or whatever it is, um, that our brains are wired to want when we achieve those goals, we experience this thing called reward. And so since pleasure is part of that, you know, three part process of reward, it's kind of easy to associate, associate it with that process. Um, but actually dopamine is more relevant to the learning and the motivation element. So basically what happens, and I'll go through how this happens in food since that's really the, the topic that we're most interested in here. For sure. Um, the brain is hardwired by natural selection to look for certain properties, certain specific properties in food. And these are the properties that would have sustained the survival and reproduction of our ancestors. And so these are things like um, carbohydrate, fat, protein, salt, glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor. Um, we, we have sensors literally in both the mouth and the small intestine that detect those substances. And those send a signal up to the brain that causes dopamine to be released. And so when we eat a food that's very concentrated in those properties, so let's say you eat a pizza and you have it with a soda or you have some ice cream or potato chips or something that has really concentrated amounts of those substances that are chemically detected, especially by your small intestine, um, that spikes a lot of dopamine in your brain. And basically, the more dopamine spikes in your brain, the more it triggers this process of learning and motivation. So basically your brain learns to prefer the foods that contain those substances. So let's say you eat a slice of pizza, your brain gets wind of all the awesome stuff that's in that. There's tons of starch, there's tons of fat, there's some protein in there. Your brain says, this is an awesome source of the things that I'm looking for. I mean, if you put pizzas out on the savannah hunter gatherers would go crazy for those things <laughs> they would not turn up their noses at pizza um and so your brain says oh this is awesome i want to do this again i want to eat this pizza again so it spikes that dopamine and what that does is it it causes your brain to remember all the sensory cues that were associated with that pizza so the smell of it the sight of it, the situation you were in, the people you were with, the name of the restaurant, all of that stuff gets positive reinforcement. And so what that means is that all of those cues, all those sensory cues turn into motivational triggers the next time you encounter them. And so your brain learns and your brain learns to be motivated by those cues. And so the next time you smell the pizza, the next time you see that greasy box, or the next time you see the restaurant, or the next time you hang out with your friend who you always have pizza with, that's a cue for your brain to say, your, your brain says, oh, this is a situation in which I can get pizza. I remember this. This is a situation in which I can get a food that I really, really like on some like fundamental hardwired level. And so it triggers that motivation for you to obtain and eat the pizza. And that motivation is something that we commonly call a craving. 
I guess that's problematic because uh, you don't have to hunt and gather very far to find pizza or processed food or ice cream or all these hyper palatable things that you mentioned in the book, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's a very important point. Um, and that's the other side of it is that not only does this food that's not so good for us have properties that the brain is hardwired to look for and to be motivated by, but it's also very, very easy to get. And so we're exposed to those cues, those motivational triggers all the time um, through advertising and just through walking around town or through other people. Um, and there's very little barrier to obtaining those foods. So there's very little effort to obtain those foods and it's very little money. Like we, we like to complain about the price of food today, but the reality is that it's far cheaper than it's ever been in human history. Um, if you look back to the, I think 1930s or forties in the United States, people were spending, and I'm not talking about during the great depression. I'm talking about after that people were spending about a quarter of their food expenditures on food or sorry, a quarter of their disposable income on food. And today we're spending about 10%. So, wow. um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it's practically free at this point to eat, you know, calorie dense processed foods. So cost is not really an entry barrier for, for most people. And so, um, so basically all the things that make us want to eat these foods have increased as the processed food industry has um, essentially crafted foods that expertly appeal to hardwired human drives more and more and more over time. And the all the things that tell us not to eat those foods, like the amount of effort it would take or the amount of money it would cost, those things have gone down over time. So basically the cost benefit equation has gotten really, really good for these calorie dense processed foods. And I think that, you know, it's just a very simple basic reason why a lot of us eat more of those. For sure. And I mean, it's amazing today how in the media, you know, getting into these diet wars around various macronutrients, low carb, low fat, and, and, you know, demonizing one versus the other. And, you know, again, in your book, you go into great detail around the mechanisms of the brain, but uh, you also provide some of these great um, anecdotes and stories. And one of them, which really hits home because of this whole question around, you know, hyperinsulinemias and uh, carbohydrates, is the story of uh, Chris Voigt, the director of the Washington Potato uh, State Commission, who decides to eat nothing but potatoes for two months, which is basically 20 potatoes a day. Um, can you share his story? Because I think that really highlights this uh, quite well. Yeah, absolutely. So this, um, yeah, so as you said, Chris Boyd was the commissioner of the, um, uh, gosh, I forgot the name off the top of my head, but anyway, yeah. that thing you said. The Washington State, <laughs> yeah, Potato Commission, there you go. There you go, Washington State Potato Commissioner. And uh, he, um, at one point, the state of Washington decided to remove potatoes from the list of approved foods for the Women, Infants, and Children program. So this is a food assistance program for <clears throat> um, women and young children to try to uh, support nutritional adequacy in the diets of 
of children in the United States for lower income people. And um, the reason they decided to take potatoes off the list is because they classified it as a vegetable. And I guess the idea is that, you know, they don't want people replacing like broccoli and, and greens with potatoes. And I totally understand that. They're not really the same thing. Um, but, oh yeah. And also most people eat most of their potatoes as like fries and chips. Exactly. Um, That's a good uh, note there. Yeah. So yeah, he, he decided to eat nothing but potatoes and a very small amount of oil for, I think, was it two months? Um, I, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but anyway, so essentially his, his goal his stated goal was to not lose weight. So he didn't want to lose weight. He wanted to keep eating enough potatoes to maintain his weight, but he couldn't do it. He started losing weight immediately and like he had very little hunger. Um, he lost a fair amount of weight. I don't remember exactly how much. And basically any metabolic marker you want to look at, whether it was his cholesterol or his glucose or his blood pressure improved considerably. He's not, he stopped snoring. Um, so essentially his health improved across the board by eating a diet that was something like 85% quickly digesting starch. And so for me, this is really interesting because it suggests that, you know, these ideas that starch or carbohydrate is the enemy and especially fast digesting starch and its effects on insulin and that's the primary cause of obesity. We hear this idea a lot. I think this potato diet thing is kind of a, a pretty striking counterexample of how that's not that's not always the case. And I would say that it's probably not the case in general. Um, and it's not just one person, you know, there have been this, this potato diet has become kind of like an internet phenomenon. I don't know if you've come across these web pages of, um, potato dieters, but there are a lot of these folks who do this diet and find that it really cuts their appetite and helps them eat fewer calories. And by the way, I'm not, um, recommending the potato diet for, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, I just find it interesting, an interesting illustration of principles. And I think that if you want, if you really want to understand human eating behavior and you want to, you want to understand body fatness and obesity, if you really want to understand it, you have to make sense of observations like that. You have to make sense of observations that low carbohydrate and low fat diets both cause fat loss. And the more, the lower you go in either direction, the more fat loss and the more appetite suppression you're going to see. And that's true whether you're eating a diet that's almost nothing but starch, like the potato diet, or whether you're eating a ketogenic diet on the other side, you're going to see effects on appetite and body fatness that are actually quite similar to one another, despite diametrically opposed macronutrient um, distribution. And so... I think if we really want to understand what's going on, we have to acknowledge both of those phenomena and we have to come up with higher level principles that are able to explain all of that instead of just half of that equation. 
Yeah, I mean, in the book, you talk about some of the common traits of uh, traditional or ancestral diets, and this idea of limited variety is one of them, and uh, inability to concentrate views, foods and uh, very few cooking methods. And so, you know, it gets back to that idea of, of just consumption goes down naturally. Can you can you talk a bit about those three factors and, and from a traditional standpoint and how that's changed so much today? Yeah, so um, you said variety, you said ability to concentrate, and what was the third one? Uh, very few cooking methods. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so, yeah, one of the things, a very basic property of, of the brain is something called habituation. And this is something that is so ancient that even jellyfish do it. So it's it's been around for a long time, but basically the idea is that the more we're exposed to a stimulus, the less we respond to it. And so the first time we see some stimulus, um, whether it's like an ad on a billboard or whatever, we'll pay a certain amount of attention to it. But after we've seen it a few times, it's not really giving us additional information. And so we kind of start to ignore it. Um, well, we actually do that at the dinner table too. And so how that manifests is through this phenomenon called sensory specific satiety. And what that means is that we kind of get satiated by or bored with individual foods at a certain point, but that doesn't mean that we're satiated for all food. And the upshot of that is that the more variety there is on a table or on your plate, the more total calories you're going to end up eating. And I think most people can intuitively understand that when they think about their own behavior at a buffet. I think most people realize that they tend to overeat when they go to buffets. I certainly do. For sure. And that, and food variety really explains um, much of why that happens. So traditional societies did not have the kind of food variety that we have today. So... Um, if you look, even hunter-gatherer diets, hunter-gatherers have, tend to have very diverse diets. And if you look over the course of a year, hunter-gatherer cultures might eat like 100 different types of food. But if you look at individual meals and individual days, they're not eating a wide variety of different things. They're usually only eating a few things each day, and especially at individual meals and at one time. Usually you just, whatever you find, whether you are able to hunt an antelope or get your hands on honey or whatever, you just eat that item on the spot or you bring it back to camp and share it. You don't like build up ingredients until you have a sumptuous feast and then share it with all your buddies. I mean, occasionally you might do that, but that's not the day to day, you know, way that it goes down. That's rare. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there was a more limited variety and, you find that in agricultural societies too. Like you can't, I mean, a grocery store is insane. There are thousands of different kinds of foods in a grocery store. There is no culture in human history up until very recently that had access to that kind of diversity. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing that you mentioned is the ability to concentrate foods. And I think, I think this is really important. I think this is really, really important. And I'm going to make an analogy here. I'm going to make an analogy with um, the coca plant. So the coca plant, and this is something, as you know, that I discuss in my book, the coca plant is a natural stimulant 
that's used in South America that's kind of like caffeine. People chew these leaves, and it has a small amount of cocaine in it, and that goes into their circulation and gives them a little boost. But there's not a lot of cocaine in a coca leaf. It's just a little bit. But what you can do with that is you can extract the active ingredient, which is, as I said, cocaine, and concentrate it. And this is, this is the ingredient. So co what cocaine does is it increases dopamine levels in a part of the brain called the ventral striatum. And that's part of the brain that's really important for that learning and motivation process we were talking about earlier. And so this is the active ingredient in the coca plant that our brains are looking for. This is the ingredient that increases dopamine. We can concentrate it and turn that into cocaine, and then all of a sudden it's an addictive drug, and now it can be problematic. Um, and then we can further refine it <clears throat> by freebasing it, which turns it into crack. And what that does is it causes it to become fat-soluble, which means it crosses all your membranes and gets into your brain a lot faster than cocaine does. And so now we've made it an even more active ingredient. And so basically the progress, the, the march of technology, being able to extract cocaine, being able to freebase it, this march of technology from a natural unrefined product to a highly refined active ingredient is one of identifying the substance that spikes dopamine in the human brain and concentrating it using increasing levels of technology over historical time. And that is exactly what we've done with food. So if you look at <clears throat> the substances that spike dopamine in the brain, of whether you're a human or a rat, it is sugar and starch and fat and amino acids, especially the amino acid glutamine, or excuse me, glutamate, um, which is a, you know, like monosodium glutamate, yep. the, um, that umami meaty thing that's in bone broth and MSG and soy sauce. Um, and so we have taken those things, and those things exist in a natural context, right? Sugar is in fruit. Fat is in meat and nuts. Starch is in tubers. So these things exist in a natural context, and, and they're part of nutritious, whole, natural foods that our ancestors would have thought and would have been motivated to eat in order to sustain themselves. But what we've done is we've taken those foods and we've purified out those active ingredients. The, we've, you know, salt, we have crystalline salt, absolute purest possible form of that reward factor. We have monosodium glutamate, which is the absolute most concentrated form of that reward factor. We have crystalline white sugar, again, most concentrated possible version of that reward factor. We have isolated fats like refined seed oils, most poss you know, concentrated possible version of that. We have things like cornstarch and potato starch. So in every case, technology has allowed us to refine these active ingredients and in a way that was not available to our ancestors. Our ancestors, you know, if you go back far enough, they had to get these rewarding substances in the context of whole, whole nutritious foods, things that were less calorie dense, 
things that were less stimulating to those motivation and um, learning circuits and things that were um, that contained a variety of other nutrients like fiber and vitamins and minerals. So basically we've, we've separated the reward from the nutrition and created these things that are, that are unnaturally stimulating to the human brain. I guess that's a great way to uh, increase body fatness across the entire populations and also to sell a lot of processed food, right? Yeah, it sure is. I mean, absolutely. And that, that's the direction that you've seen both the food system and our body fatness move over the course of the century as technology and affluence has, has progressed. Um, so, okay, so that's the variety, that's the concentration. Oh, yeah, and the cooking methods, right. So um, if you look at traditional cultures like hunter-gatherers or non-industrial agriculturalists, they usually only have a couple of different ways of cooking food at their disposal. They have, you know, they can, like hunter-gatherers commonly will roast meats or roast tubers or they'll bury them in hot coals. Um, sometimes if they can obtain bowls or, or, uh, <clears throat> pots through trade, they'll boil things and that's about it. And they don't really have a bunch of flavorings to add either. They don't have like salt and added fats and spices. So their food tends to be very simple. It's like, I'm going to take this antelope leg and I'm going to roast it and I'm going to eat it. And I'm going to take this tuber and I'm going to bury it in coals until it's cooked. And then I'm going to eat it. There's no butter. There's no salt. I'm just going to eat this tuber or I'm going to eat this fresh fruit or I'm going to drink this honey or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, they're not making brownies, you know, they're not making <laughs> paleo Absolutely. brownies. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, and so they didn't have baking, you know, temperature controlled ovens. They, they couldn't saute things. They couldn't broil things. They couldn't, you know, there, there were, you could go on and on about the number of different cooking methods and techniques that they did not have available to them that we use today to enhance the pleasure value and the reward value of our food. And so, and you know, there's, there's costs and benefits. Like we, we get enjoyment out of that. It's, it's not all a bad thing. We get enjoyment out of it. But I think that those are things that we have developed over the course of our progress of technology and affluence that contribute to our heightened drive to eat. hundred percent. I mean, and in your book, you, you know, you describe how the body defends against, you know, certain types of uh, body fatness, you know, like a thermostat in someone's house, um, which you call a lipostat. Uh, could you talk about that, how the, the body will defend sort of a lower or higher set point depending on the individual? Yeah, so the I think this is one thing that's really critical for people to understand about how the brain interacts with food intake and body fatness is that the brain actually directly regulates body fatness, directly regulates the amount of fat in your body. And the way that works, as you said, it's like a home thermostat where there's a certain set point. So let's say on your thermostat, you might set it to 65 degrees Fahrenheit 
or you know whatever in Celsius, and uh, if the temperature drops below that, your heat will kick on, or if it goes above that, your air conditioning will kick on. And the idea, this is called a homeostatic system or a negative feedback system. And the idea is that it is designed to maintain um, the stability of a particular variable, in this case, temperature. And so the body does the same thing with temperature. You know, we regulate our temperature around 98.6 plus or minus a degree. Um, and the body is really good at it. And the way it works is that you have sensors. It's just like your thermostat. There's sensors that detect the temperature. And then when it deviates from the set value, the body kicks in a suite of responses, including behavioral responses, like making you want to put on a sweater or drink some, you know, cold beverage with ice in it and physiological responses like dilating or constricting your capillaries in your skin, um, changing um, the level of nerve impulses to your brown fat, causing shivering, things like that. So, and, and, it turns out that the brain regulates a number of things in, in this way, a number of things homeostatically. And one of them is body fat. And so the way that works is that your fat tissue secretes a hormone called leptin, and it secretes it in proportion to the size of your fat stores. And so there's this circulating signal in your bloodstream that, that is a measure of the amount of fat that you carry. And your brain pays very close attention to that. And when your level of body fatness starts to decline from its preferred level, your brain gets wind of it and it kicks in a sort of starvation response. And so this is something that dieters tend to know quite well, tend to be familiar with. It's a, a feeling of hunger and often a feeling of sluggishness. You may feel cold. Um, you'll become more responsive to food cues. So you want... Uh, you feel more tempted when you're around calorie-dense foods than you used to be. And this is all part of a program that your brain initiates to try to get that fat back. So this is, this is the, just kind of a general overview of the process that, that regulates body fatness in humans. And there's a lot of like side issues that we can talk about there. And one of them is the one that you brought up, which is that this set point is not really set in stone. So this level of body fatness that the brain defends, and in particular, this system that I'm talking about called the lipostat, which is um, what I call it in the book, and that's um, what you mentioned as well, um, this system can defend around different levels of body fatness, depending on the context that you're in. So it's like it would be like changing the setting on your thermostat. So for example, um, one of the things that can change the defended level of body fatness, the, the setting on this lipostat is food quality. So there's um, some evidence, quite a bit of evidence in rodents and some evidence in humans, for example, that the level of reward or palatability of the food you're eating doesn't just so it obviously it has an influence on your your food intake your kind of passive food intake 
But not only that, it also seems to change the descended level of body fatness. So if you're eating food that's very, very, um, very, very rewarding, things that have concentrated levels of these things that your brain is instinctively looking for, stuff like pizza or ice cream or candy, all that, um, that will actually cause your brain to increase the, the amount of fat it wants you to carry. And so the idea here, and, and this, this is me speculating, but to me, the, what this is, is the brain saying, I really like these foods. I really like what's in these foods. And so I'm going to do everything I can to get you to eat more of those. And part of that process is to reduce satiety and to increase the level, the descended level of body fat to allow you to eat more of those foods that the brain perceives as highly valuable on some basic instinctive level. And so, um, conversely, if we eat simple foods, things that are satisfying, but not that don't really drive the brain wild in that same way, like plain meats, plain vegetables, plain fruits, things that are simpler and more similar to how our ancestors would have eaten food and would have prepared food, then that helps lower the body fat set point and helps make the brain more comfortable at a lower level of body fat. So you're not really fighting yourself to maintain fat loss like you would if you were just using portion control. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great take home point for, you know, for listeners because this idea of negative self-talk and people wondering why they're craving foods. And, um, you know, you go through this so uh, eloquently in the book in terms of just this evolutionary uh, drive to consume calories in terms of, you know, just that evolutionary goal of, of, of reproduction. And then, so it's a, it's a normal human response. And of course the environment that we're in now is just such a mismatch to that, that it's, uh, uh, it's easy to be uh, stimulated all the time. Yeah, I think that's right. And this is one of the things that I'm really, I'm really glad to, to hear the feedback from my book. Um, and th this isn't something that I really thought about a lot as I was writing, but I think it's, it's a natural consequence um, that it helps people understand that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're having a hard time losing weight or they're having a hard time controlling their eating. This is the human brain doing what it's designed to do. And if you don't want it to do that, it's going to be, it's going to be more difficult than just letting it do it. So um, I think, helping people to understand that these are very natural impulses and struggling with them is kind of something that you would expect to happen in this scenario. And it's not the result of a kind of, you know, personality defect or willpower insufficiency or something like that. I think uh, people find that pretty comforting. Hundred percent. I mean, as a clinician, sort of boots on the ground, you definitely see that with clients, and it, just their ability to develop better habits once they have a bit of that understanding is is, is sort of phenomenal because they can feel they're working their way out of that. Now, in the book, you also talk mm -hmm. about sleep being a key, obviously a key aspect, and we're chronically sleep deprived. So, can you just briefly touch on how that ties into the brain and and this overall obesity picture? 
Yeah, sure. So um, there are um, several studies now that have shown that when you restrict sleep to like half of what people normally sleep, they tend to eat more the next day. So there's this relationship between um, sleeping behavior and eating behavior. And, and we're talking about a pretty significant number of calories. I think, I think it was like 300 calories in one study. So pretty significant amount of calories. Um, and this helps explain these observational findings that we've been seeing for a long time. I'm sure people have seen the headlines where people who get um, like five to seven hours of sleep a night tend to gain more weight over time than people who sleep eight to nine hours a night and uh, or maybe it was seven to nine hours a night um, and so we have we have a pretty compelling convergence happening right now between experimental studies randomized controlled trials as well as observational studies that are all suggesting that insufficient sleep leads to higher intake of food and higher weight gain and so some of these studies have gone in and tried to figure out why that is. So using, for example, functional MRI to look at brain activity and see what are the differences we observe here in parts of the brain that are related to food intake. And what they see is that, interestingly, there's a few different things they see, but one of them is that um, people who are not sleeping enough have a brain response that is very a, a pattern of brain activity, I should say, that's very similar to what you see in people who have lost weight or in people who are starving. And that is that the brain has a higher motivation, higher responsiveness to food cues. So if you put them in one of these fMRI brain scanners and you show them um, images of calorie-dense, tempting food, you're going to see a heightened response in these areas of the brain that govern motivation and, and learning that we were talking about earlier. So basically, and this is the same thing you see in people who are, who are dieting and who are below their body fat set point. Um, so there's something about insufficient sleep that triggers this, um, these neural pathways in parts of the brain that regulate body fatness and appetite and cause them to drive our appetite and possibly our body weight higher. So that's one interesting thing that the research has shown. Um, but sleep seems to undermine our brains and our behaviors related to food in multiple ways or insufficient sleep. Um, so another one is that sleep creates something called an optimism bias. Excuse me, sleep, uh, insufficient sleep creates something called an optimism bias. And that's what happens when a person becomes less sensitive to the potential downsides of their behavior and more sensitive to the potential rewards. And you see this in people who gamble um, <clears throat> you see this in studies that use gambling to study this phenomenon in situations of sleep deprivation. People who haven't gotten enough sleep and who gamble will 
really go after potential rewards, they, they get reckless. They'll go after potential rewards and they won't care about their losses. And, um, is that why casinos are open all night long? Yeah, maybe, maybe. And I mean, how does that apply to food? So with food, there are costs and there are benefits to food, right? So the benefits a lot of times are enjoyment and pleasure. There also may be some, you know, cognitive benefits, thinking about how some food may benefit one's health. And then there are the downsides of food, which have to do with um, how certain foods may affect our body fatness, may affect our health negatively in the future. And so if you're around tempting foods, if you're around unhealthy, calorie-dense, tempting foods, and you have an optimism bias, you're going to tend to focus on the benefits of that food, how good it's going to taste, how it's going to make you feel, and you're not going to tend to focus on the downsides, like the fact that that could be bringing you closer to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. <clears throat> and so people who haven't had enough sleep are really not able to regulate their behavior in a constructive, healthy manner as effectively as people who have slept enough. And uh, my, my friend and business partner, Dan Party has shown this in, in a study of his own that this applies to food. So the more you restrict a person's sleep, the more likely, not only are they more likely to eat foods that are unhealthy, they're more, un, they're more likely, excuse me, let me back up for a second. Not only are they more likely to eat unhealthy foods, they are more likely to eat foods that they themselves perceive as both tempting and unhealthy. So essentially, sleep, insufficient sleep causes them to defect from their own healthy, positive, long-term goals for themselves and kind of give in to things that they know are not in their own best interest. For sure. I mean, you see this all the time with clients coming in, stopping for their morning coffee, and all of a sudden they've got a, a, a muffin or a croissant or something in their hand when really they didn't want to have one. But the uh, that sleep deprivation, that chronic stress is such a huge driver of that. Um, and in clinical practice, when we, when we shift people onto lower-carb diets, uh, we tend to see some nice shifts in weight gain. And people tend to, there's no doubt impacts from the blood sugar insulin area, but there's some deeper impacts that are really going on that people tend to not be uh, in the media and on blogs uh, commenting on. And I've heard you, you know, comment on those in terms of the caloric intake and the protein intake. Could you, can you touch on that as, as some driving factors behind the, the ability for those types of diets to help lose weight? Yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so I think there are a couple of ways in which low-carb diets work. Um, I tend not to be very convinced by the insulin explanation, um, although I will say I feel more confident in the fact that insulin, high insulin doesn't cause fat gain than I do in the statement that it's not involved in the effectiveness of lower-carbohydrate diets. Gotcha. Um, so just to reiterate, I'm more confident in the former statement than the latter. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things we see is that protein has very powerful impacts on satiety and on how the uh, lipostat regulates body fat levels. So 
So higher protein diets tend to um, create higher levels of satiety and promote more effective um, and more sustainable fat loss. And we know that protein actually acts on these brain circuits that regulate appetite and body fatness. And so there's a, there's a mechanism that's been worked out for this. And uh, when we look at the effectiveness of low-carbohydrate diets for reducing calorie intake and for um, losing fat, we see that generally the proportion of protein in the diet goes up. And I, I, I happen to think that that's very important in the effect. So if you manipulate the protein intake, if you just change people's protein intake, without changing their carbohydrate intake, but so let's say you increase protein at the expense of fat, you see very similar effects to when you increase it at the expense of carbohydrate. What you see is a reduction in spontaneous calorie intake and you see spontaneous weight loss even without deliberate calorie restriction, which is very similar to what you see with low carb diets. And there's some there's some research, and I'm not going to say it's conclusive, but there's some research um, suggesting that that higher protein component of low carb diets is actually more important than the actual reduction in carbohydrate. So if you put someone on a low carb diet, and and by the way, I'm not talking about ketogenic diets here. I'm talking about a moderate low carb diet that's yep. more typical of what most people would do. I think ketogenic diets are a little bit different of a of a thing, um, but when you when you put people on a moderate low carbohydrate diet, um, that is not higher in protein, that where the proportion of protein does not increase, you don't really see the same benefits that you would normally see from a low carbohydrate diet. So you don't really see the appetite control and the weight loss very much um, in relationship in, in relation to what you see when you allow people to eat as much protein as, as they would normally eat on a low carbohydrate diet. So I think overall um, it paints a fairly convincing picture that higher proportion of protein is an important element of the effectiveness of low carbohydrate diets. Um, but I think the effectiveness also ties into a lot of these other things we were talking about. So you're cutting in a low carbohydrate diet, you are specifically cutting out <clears throat> one or two of the most important reward factors in your diet. So starch and sugar, these are two things that the brain is really keen on really looking for in food. And if you're reducing those to a great degree, you're reducing the attractiveness of your diet to those um, fundamental motivational circuits in your brain. And you might be eating more of other things like fat and protein, but you're still eating a diet that doesn't have everything your brain is looking for. I mean, your brain wants all of everything all the yeah, time. Definitely. And yeah, and so it's if you're saying, no, you can't have all of everything – I'm going to pick these two major things that you want and, and not let you have those anymore or not as much, then you're reducing the overall attractiveness of the diet to those motivational circuits that drive us to eat. 
Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And then possibly also reducing food variety just by taking, you know, bread off the table. hundred percent. And I mean, you do such a great job in the book and the solutions section there in terms of public health initiatives that, you know, could be definitely beneficial. And of course, a nice six step solution that you provide for people to help, you know, reboot, um, their body composition. So that's, that's fantastic. Now, if we, I want to be respectful of your time here, uh, Stefan, um, last question here, your morning routine. Can you give us a little bit of insights into, you know, are you, are you a coffee drinker? What does the morning routine look like for you? <laughs> All right. So I get up around seven o'clock typically, and, um, I go into the kitchen and I make breakfast. Breakfast is usually either oatmeal with blueberries, and homemade whole milk yogurt, or I will have um, often a potato and an egg, or a um, I make these kind of grain pancakes, not really a pancake, like a sweet pancake, but a whole grain kind of flatbread thing, and nice. I'll have an egg on that. Um, and then I have a little bit of tea, so usually I'll have a pretty... Um, Weak black tea is, is most often what I have. Sometimes I'll have green tea, but I'm fairly sensitive to caffeine, so um, I find that my sweet spot is just a little bit of caffeine just to kind of give me a little kick in the morning. Um, and then I get to work at my, my home-built standing desk. Awesome. That's, uh, that's terrific. Well, Listen, Stefan, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Again, your book is just phenomenal in terms of the depths of the insights. Um, and for all the docs and nutritionists and trainers out there, you know, it's so much great insight in there as well as just great, you know, metaphors and anecdotes to help people really kind of understand the overarching themes of the book. So, you know, where can people pick up the book and where can people stay connected with you and your research? Yeah, the, probably the easiest way to get the book is on Amazon and uh, it's, there, there are a couple of different pages right now, unfortunately. So, um, and this is an issue I'm trying to get resolved, but right now there's a different page for the hard cover and the, um, um, audio book and the, and the Kindle version. And so, um, if you go to the hard cover and you don't see that there's a Kindle or an audio available, just, um, look for the other page. Um, cause all three of those are available on Amazon. Um, so also I'm at stephanguyenet.com. That's S T E P H A N G U Y E N E T.com or wholehealthsource.org. If that's easier than spelling my name out, um, that's where my blog is. I have a page for my book, a page for the ideal weight program. And, um, my Twitter is at W H source. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Stefan, for, for joining us today. And thanks again for everyone tuning in. As always, you can find all the links in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And if you enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. 
You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's performance podcasts.